Welcome to the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences podcast. My name is Michael Beal. I'm a speech language pathologist at UCLA Medical Center and an assistant professor at California State University, Northridge. In this episode of the ANCDS podcast, I talked with doctors Rebecca Schistler Marshall and Jacqueline Lauris Gore about the role of integrative treatments during the rehabilitation of individuals with neurogenic communication disorders. Dr. Marshall is an associate professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Special Education at the University of Georgia. She's also a mindfulness instructor, certified life coach, yoga instructor, Reiki master, and shamanic practitioner. Her primary research interests include integrative treatments such as mindfulness for aphasia, attention, and aging. Dr. Laura Score is an associate professor in the Communication Sciences and Disorders Department of Georgia State University. She directs the Aphasia and Motor Speech Disorders Lab at Georgia State, and her research interests include aphasia, stress, depression, and integrative health. Before I begin our discussions with Dr. Laura Score and Marshall, I'd like to encourage listeners to become a member of the Academy of Neurologic Communication Disorders and Sciences. ANCDS is a nonprofit professional association that supports practitioners who serve individuals with neurologic communication disorders by providing education, training, and certification opportunities to promote high-quality professional service. For speech-language pathologists who have five or more years of clinical experience working with adults or children with neurogenic communication disorders, ANCDS offers a board certification process for clinicians to be recognized for their advanced knowledge and skills. You can find more information about ANCDS and the board certification process at our website. The URL is ancds.org. And now, on to my conversation with Drs. Jacqueline Laura Score and Rebecca Marshall. Well, uh, Dr. Laura Score, Dr. Marshall, welcome to the ANCDS podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes. You know, I, I've been really interested in talking to you because of people doing research in aphasiology and I think speech pathology in general. Both of you kind of have carved out a, a unique niche, I think, in terms of trying to look at how some practices in integrative health could be applied to aphasia, to understanding how people's responses, particularly their stress responses, and, uh, may influence their communication performance. I was wondering if both of you could, could just kind of give us uh, an idea of how you, how you ended up where you're at in terms of your research interests. Dr. Lauris Gore, why don't we start with you? <laughs> we'll take turns. Um, you know, it, it's it's really been a, a long haul. Um, 
I started as a clinician, as a speech language pathologist, uh, full time, uh, working in rehab back in the early 90s. And you know, I'd work with patients who became very frustrated. And they became frustrated during language tasks. There were a lot of things going on in their lives where there was um, you know, stressful events uh, within their families, um, just the stroke itself, etc. And it, it seemed to me that it had an effect on uh, performance. And I you know, wondered if there was something there too with recovery. So those questions were really boiling up as, as I was had that clinical experience. Um, and then I decided to go and, and get my PhD. And at about that same, same time, uh, integrative health was becoming very important to me personally. And so as I um, experienced the benefits of integrative health, I began to think about how that may also influence uh, therapy for the, the people that I was helping. So, so yeah. Yeah, I had kind of a similar, a slightly similar, but yet different, but it was uh, also my own personal experience with alternative medicine. And as I read more, I wondered why aren't we looking at this with individuals with aphasia or within speech language pathology and started really digging into their, just the nothingness <laughs> that was there at the time regarding all sorts of integrative medicine, whether that be, you know, mindfulness or acupuncture or yoga or Ayurveda, all of it was fascinating to me that this was out there and I hadn't really known about it and that there was research in multiple areas, but not specifically in speech language pathology. Yeah. And, you know, I think out of, I'm trying to think of another kind of approach towards helping people that a speech pathologist we could do where we would really be drawing on our own personal experience. What was it about either of your experiences with, let's say, meditation that made you go, hmm, you know, my patients would benefit from this? Rebecca, you want to go first on this one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, <laughs> It's interesting because I was uh, I was in graduate school when when I was learning about mindfulness and meditation uh, was part of it, and just found what an incredible benefit it had to me to be able to just cope with daily stressors, mm. and how it helped me even remember things better. That I was able to you know if I took care of myself, if I slept, if I exercised, if I did my mindfulness and did my yoga that my brain functioned better. I had a certain kind of diet, then my brain stopped working. So all of those things really, you know, I just kept thinking, but what are, what's going on with these clients? I remember a client coming in and we were actually working on mindfulness and she left and had a huge Coke and was eating like a Pop-Tart on the way out. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm, you know, it's not just this one thing. What about all the other places in her life that she's, her lifestyle habits might be affecting her ability to, you know, for her, it was expressive language to be able to produce more words. Yeah. And I think for me, as I look back at, at my own personal history, um, 
uh, yoga became was what's a guiding force in my life prior to meditation and yoga has been part of my life for 25 over 25 years now and i grew up though with chiropractic medicine as as part of my health uh, practice and so integrative health for me really has been a very long time uh, in as part of my life and when I think about yoga specifically, because the the yoga, the the benefits of yoga really were closer in in timeline with uh, the start of my PhD, and what I remember noticing uh, that got me very um, curious was the the expansion, I guess, of of consciousness, the awareness of breath, the awareness of my body. The awareness of how the the mind and body work together, and so taking that big picture, and and then transferring it to um, this population of of individuals who have had brain damage and have communication problems and so forth, um, instead of looking just at just at the language, which all of us I think as we work with with patients or people living with aphasia, uh, we can see that it's not just the language. There's there's so much else going on. There's, you know, the attentional system, there's the memory system, and then, you know, there's the, the physiologic stuff too that's, that's happening, uh, changes in, in um, physiologic, uh, biologic markers and so forth. So I may be rambling right now, but I, I think, I think that becoming for me that, that, that mo or those, those moments of becoming very aware of my body and becoming very aware of this link between the mind and the body and, and consciousness, uh, really was important to me. You know, an another part that, I think is unique for Rebecca and I is that we were both here in Georgia. <laughs> we both came, <laughs> we both started our careers about the same time. Yeah. And uh, um, even though I'm older than uh, Rebecca, um, I, you know, we were at kind of the same stage in our lives. And we both, when we first met, which was pretty soon after I came here to, to Atlanta, you know, we, we started talking about our interests and it was like, oh, you like yoga? Yeah, I like yoga. <laughs> oh, you yeah. like, you know, meditation? Oh, you do, you know. And so so there was a, a kind of a beauty. There's a nice synergy between mm -hmm. both of us and we were so close together uh, geographically that um, we could exchange ideas easily. We could, um, you know, go to yoga um, events together, meditation events, and and it was so there was a a great beauty in the timing of of what we were interested in and the two of us meeting as well. So, has it been difficult for either of you to establish your research career, kind of taking a less conventional path? I'm guessing that working together has made be made it a bit easier, but I don't know, I'm curious. I'll field that one. <laughs> um, uh, yes, the, I mean, the short answer is yes. It has not been the easy path to choose. Yes, working together has made it a hundred times better than it could have been, I think. But, you know, there were a few times that I was like, that's it, I give up, I'm not gonna 
publish anything else that has to do with complementary and alternative medicine because no matter where I sent it, the feedback was, why are you studying this? Why is this important? And yet I like to me, my whole worldview is the reason why I'm studying this. So it was, it was challenging to hear that from journal after journal after journal and with someone else who at least believed something similar could say, well, let's just, you know, let's just try again. Let's just try another journal. Let's, why don't we do this? Let's apply for this grant. And that was, I think I probably would have given up <laughs> a long time ago if it wasn't for having a collaborator. <laughs> so thank you, Jacqueline. Yeah. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thank you. Um, but I, I agree, even getting that paper out. So the first paper that Rebecca and I published was in 2004, and it was a review of complementary alternative medicine. And um, just getting that paper published was hard. And, and I do remember one of the reviewers commenting that, why are you looking at this? This isn't even important for speech therapy. Yeah. And um, and but you know both Rebecca and I were stubborn and we believe that you know there, there's enough evidence from other clinical populations and from healthy populations too that no we should be looking at this as a field we should be moving our field forward in this way because it's happening the the clients that we see the patients that we see they are using complementary alternative medicine they are they're using acupuncture they are doing all sorts of things and and we you know we see them in our therapy sessions coming back and saying well you know i tried this and i really think it's helping me or you know or sometimes it's, it doesn't seem like it's helping but it, the questions are there people are using it so let's start studying it and um and let's get the papers out and let's you know let the the publications happen too i i think that sometimes our field can be um uh and and this may be true of of many areas of science too it's just um looking for safer routes of exploration uh looking for um or, or journals sometimes can be very conservative too in what they will publish the topics that they publish so i I think all of that has contributed to, to some of the frustration um, that Rebecca and I have had over the years. But but definitely it seems that another anecdote <laughs> is uh, when um, I started teaching, uh, one of the, the first uh, classes that I had, I had asked the class, uh, these are graduate students, and I asked, I was like, have you, have any of you tried any type of complementary uh, medicines? You know, have you tried a massage or you know, acupuncture, etc. And I think one person raised their hand. And now what I have are students coming into my class using essential oils and, you know, talking about, oh, they just went to yoga class or, or things yeah. like that. So I really think that that it's it's not as as unconventional as it used to be for sure. And I know Rebecca, you all did a, a survey of speech pathologists at one point too, looking at the use of of a different medicine or complementary medicine too. So, um, you know, I, I just I, I think that uh, it, it has been challenging over the years, but yeah, you know, I think that wave is is changing. In some places, they even um, won't consider mindfulness as an alternative or a complementary, you know, as an integrative approach anymore. That it's it's mainstream now mm. in some places like that right. that that that's something that is well accepted 
Yeah, here at UCLA, they've got a big research program focusing on mindfulness. Are there any, for the, the PhD student out there who's thinking about this as a topic, any suggestions? Persevere. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I just think, you know, and, and I think Rebecca and I, and, and Rebecca, I don't want to speak out of turn, but um, I think some of our experience with studying mindfulness, and, and Rebecca has done a few more studies than I have in this area, but what I think, what I've learned is that uh, studying mindfulness in a group with a group design is very challenging. And so studying something like mindfulness and probably some of these other integrative health practices too, single subject is probably a better way to approach Mm -hmm. studying this. So anyway, did you have anything to add to that, Rebecca, as far as doctoral students? And Yeah, I mean, well, and the other piece that I think you know, it, it becomes a little trickier, you know, in terms of doctoral students, but I, I think that the wave of the future is not just one particular complementary and alternative treatment, but that it's actually a combination. And, and so I don't think mindfulness itself is the answer. I think it's part of the answer. And so that becomes a little bit trickier, a little more challenging to study as a doctoral student. It becomes more of a life's work of studying a combination of treatments, um, you know, because, you know, then do you look at how does each one do on its own and then combine them? Do you, do you just say, let's look at the holistic component and combine them all before we know like that, you know, that sort of, those sort of questions that I think we need, we just don't have the answers to in this, in, in speech language pathology specifically that we're kind of, we keep looking to, um, I would encourage students to keep looking to the other fields that have done this, that are the leading edge of this particular research in complementary and alternative medicine, more integrative medicine now. Complementary and alternative, they actually even phase that phrase out. So I would say look to those fields that, that are at the leading edge. To piggyback on what um, Rebecca uh was talking about too is that big picture, not just pulling out mindfulness and, and seeing how how effective that is as a, a, a part of therapy. Um, if we, Rebecca and uh, uh, her previous uh, doctoral student, Bajoya Mahapatra, and I have been writing a, a chapter, a book chapter, about ancient traditional medicines and, and, lo- and spending time looking at um, Ayurvedic medicine as well as traditional Chinese medicine. And if you look at those ancient medicines, it's all about the whole person. They, you know, it's all about using not just the herbal remedies in traditional Chinese medicine, but all, uh, using it along with uh, massage or acupuncture and, and etc. So, and all of those ancient medicines too are very tailored for the individual. So again, that that studying this topic in a group format is hard mm-hmm. to do when you you're using techniques borrowed from ancient medicines that are more individualized so dr marshall in your survey what kind of complementary medicine integrative health approaches are slps using do you remember well it was actually um 
we were looking at students' opinions, not practitioners. Uh, so it was just whether or not they were even familiar with it. And and this mm. was several years ago. So I think that it would we would see something very different if we were to do the same study again. It was actually modeled after um, a study that was looking at medical students' knowledge of complementary alternative medicine. And people tended to be more aware of um, you know, they, I remember they didn't really know what homeopathy was. They were a little more familiar with meditation, but and acupuncture, some of the Chinese medicine techniques, but and and herbs. Those are the ones that people tended to to think about or know about. Again, this was probably almost ten years ago. So a lot has changed <laughs> in the last, you know, even five years with what people know. Like Jacqueline was saying, is people come in and say, "Oh yeah, you know, I." I have been going to yoga for the last, you know, how many ever years and, you know, it's just really changed. So I don't even know if we can take that for, you know, to, to take that information anymore and apply it today. At least a few of my clients now are getting acupuncture, looking at uh, herbs or other supplements. Um, asking me questions about should I do this? Of course, I don't feel qualified to give them any answer to that question, but it's, yeah, it's there for us to, to look at. Dr. Laura Score, I, Laura Score, I, I wanna go back because early on you, you mentioned people's stress responses and, and I know you've, done a lot of work in that area. I think for most practicing SLPs, at least in adult neuro rehab, we, we always see clients who seem to be responding to their difficulties with an excessive amount of, I guess, frustration, a, a kind of stress response. And I think it's fairly common practice for SLPs to counsel people about uh, the effects that might have on their speech fluency, etc. But I think until you and, and Dr. Marshall have you know, focused in on this topic from different angles, I'm thinking back, you know, the investigation of this effect was pretty spotty. I mean, I think I remember way back when in the 90s, I was thinking more about this. I was interested in whether biofeedback would be an appropriate approach. I did some literature search. I think I saw a paper done in the late 70s or mid 70s by Mick McNeil looking at SEMG biofeedback for individuals with non-fluent aphasia showing uh -huh. that they did improve their fluency some. And I know Dr. Murray did a study on progressive relaxation, also showing that it improved uh, speech somewhat uh, compared to traditional treatment. I think it was shown to be not as effective, but I think her conclusion was something like, well, we should do both. I don't know, maybe I'm rambling here a little bit, uh, just trying to acknowledge that I think this is 
something that as practitioners we kind of deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, I agree. And I think anecdotally, we do some of this as, as speech therapists already when we see the, the patient um, or the client getting frustrated or uh, we will say, all right, let's go ahead and let's take a break. Let's take a few breaths. All right. And then we'll come back to it. And so we're informally making that connection for our patients already that there's this link between performance and uh, the body as far as like breathing and and um, the emotional state and so forth. So we're, we're doing that. I think sometimes it's just a very intuitive move for speech therapists to do. So yeah, so but because the what we know about the language system and its vulnerability to stress, it, we know very little. Uh, my my hypothesis is that the um, language system is energized somehow by the stress system. And so, um, from one of our studies that we had in, in 2010, we, we showed that word productivity, if, if you had increased levels of cortisol, word productivity was actually going to be better. Mm. And so suggesting that, you know what, it, it may be not such a bad thing if the, the stress levels are a little bit higher in maybe some individuals. And then there's a, a recent some uh, recent findings that we're just starting to, to write up and that we had presented at um, clinical aphasiology, looking at cortisol awakening response and um, with, with uh, as a measure of chronic stress and whether that's related to some language um, variables. And we were finding that in uh, the people who don't have aphasia, that it is related to certain language variables. Um, and it's so, so it may be in, in an intact system, um, the levels of stress do somehow support uh, language and it, that may, there may be a dysregulation um, in, uh, in people with aphasia between stress and, and the language support. I don't know. We're, you know, we've done a few studies here and there and, and to get like any big takeaways uh, right now, it seems premature. Um, although I, I do think that we're, we're going somewhere <laughs> with it. And, and there are some indications that um, language and stress um, are related. But whether it be a good thing or a bad thing, and, and the individual nature of all of this is, is really up for exploration yet. Well, do you think that when you're talking about stress as something positive that energizes the language system, are you talking about some... I, I think you're talking about something different than a patient who's demonstrating frustration with their word finding blocks. And as a clinician, you get some kind of a sense that if they could just take a breath, let the dust settle a little bit and kind of gently reapproach what they wanted to say, they'd be more effective. So are we kind of talking about two different things here in a way? Yeah, I, I think that maybe um what you're describing is definitely an acute situation mm -hmm. um, and there could be differences between the acute versus the more chronic 
um, stress and how that, what the interplay is with language, with those two different um, uh, types of stress. So, and it almost does seem, yeah, I think that's a great point, Mike, is, is that, you know, those, those could be very different as far as challenge versus threat. Yeah. And, and the perspective that somebody's having and just needing to kind of back away and, and take a moment. So, yeah. I wonder yeah. if it has something to like do that. with a, a kind of an attentional component in that, you know, when someone is really frustrated and struggling, that somehow their their attention is diverted towards their frustration to some degree rather than really kind of allocating all of their resources towards the active communication. I you know this kind of maybe fits into, you know, a resource allocation model of, of uh, language performance. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, I think that um, that attention, attentional resources is, is really the, the backdrop of all of this mm-hmm. um, as far as uh, ruminating um, mm-hmm. on if you're spending or if you're using those resources for ruminating or thinking, oh, no, I'm going to fail, then that's less attention to actually put toward good performance. So, and that's been brought up. Uh, Dahlia Kahana Amate had uh, written a very nice paper um, regarding uh, uh, linguistic anxiety in adults with aphasia and the, the potential for that to be occurring. So, and, and she talks a lot about attentional resources with that. But yeah, I, I definitely agree that that is going to take away from attention that could be used for language tasks for sure. Do you do you think this is where meditation, either you or Dr. Marshall, where meditation kind of comes in as a an approach? Well, yeah, meditation is definitely that place, that technique or tool that can give us an, a, a touch of resilience to be able to deal with those. Where do I want to allocate my attention? Um, is it in this present moment? Is it in you know the past? It is in the future. Am I going to focus on the, my frustration or am I going to focus on my language at this point? And that's, that's what has been shown in the literature, mostly with healthy population of that ability to not only sustain attention, but to bring attention to, you know, to direct your attention to where you would like it to go. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of the hope. <laughs> in addition to changing the, you know, hopefully changing what's happening with the nervous system, you know, is there an activation of the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest then, can we have that relaxation that you were talking about taking a deep breath in that mindfulness moment, if we're not judging ourselves, if we're able to just see like, oh, that's interesting, I'm not able to get that word today, instead of, oh, I never get a word, I can't get that word, this, it's so frustrating for me that I can never get the words I want to find, Right? That's a very different emotional um, cascade that happens as opposed to just pausing and taking a breath and noticing what's there in that moment. Right. And that's what hopefully what mindfulness teaches us. Yeah. And, and I guess it's, it's not just kind of establishing some better awareness, but that would also maybe lead towards more attentional flexibility so that 
you know, I'm not kind of uh, got blinders on and, and just trying to force the issue, whether it's a word you want or whatever. And I have that flexibility to recognize that I've got another way to accomplish this communication task. Mindfulness meditation seems to be the form of meditation that's being researched the most. Is there a reason for that? Is it superior to other kinds of meditation if we're thinking about that for our patients? I, I'm not sure that I would label it as superior. Um, I do think that there, there's been an explosion of mindfulness research. Mm. Um, that has demonstrated both with behavioral and imaging studies the benefits of mindfulness. And so I think because of its evidence base that's been, you know, developed based on, and I'm, I'm speaking more specifically in the mindfulness tradition of John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness-based stress reduction, just building on that evidence foundation that's there, because really there are thousands of articles now um, across various patient populations and how it, that specific structure can help multiple populations, um, whether it be you know, physical, it can, people dealing with cancer, um, individuals who have psoriasis, who have mental health issues, chronic pain. So there's multiple evidence pieces. There's also some evidence in the literature that suggests that some of the different types, more concentrated type meditations, transcendental meditation, for instance, while they both help sustained attention, that mindfulness actually helps direct attention so that when unexpected things come up, that um, an individual who is trained in mindfulness meditation actually can shift focus, shift awareness um, much more easily than an individual who is just on focused attention. So I think it's kind of what you were referring to before with that, um, with different types of meditation, they, depending on how they are, what their basis is, that they have different focuses, they have different things that they can do. So there might be other types that may be helpful in other areas. Right. For sense. maybe, maybe someday we'll get to the point where we can prescribe just the right kind of meditation. Exactly. <laughs> oh, you need more focused attention? Oh, well, let's, let's work on this particular type. That'd be great. Oh, no, more directed attention. Let's go with the mindfulness. Yeah, oh and that, that's what a world that would be. Oh, wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things with mindfulness, too, is it's really been secularized. Mm. And so um, it's, I think for some people, I know one of the studies that uh, Rebecca and I were, I think it was a mindfulness study, Rebecca, it might've been yogic breathing, but, um, when we were trying to recruit, uh, participants, I remember speaking to one person who did not want to get involved and it was because of religious, uh, yeah. beliefs. Yep. And so I think that this like MBSR, uh, uh, training is far enough removed from a religious place that people yeah. feel more comfortable um, using it. And I think the same thing has kind of happened with yoga too. Yoga has been um, watered down quite a bit to get rid of kind of its spiritual aspects um, in, in some ways. So not for me, but, you know, I, I think just the, the, the 
oh the the acts i don't know what's the word the consumerism i guess that's mm-hmm. happened with with these uh, techniques has has made it so that it's maybe more palatable for some people from a variety of religious backgrounds or no religion you know so yeah, yeah. well and jacqueline that kind of goes back to what you were saying before about these were you know part of uh, ancient m- medical systems and asana the actual movement of yoga was part of ayurveda so it was it wasn't part of necessarily just spiritual it was actually part of the way that people were treated was you do these yoga poses and you take these herbs and you eat these foods and you do this meditation and you do this breathing techniques and together all of them it wasn't separated out into a specific piece or thing so i think that's that's part of what you're talking about too is it's been it's been taken out of that system and now made more you know palatable to the western tradition or cultures mm-hmm. so dr marshall are, i i think are you kind of suggesting that you know maybe we're we might there's some risk of, of making the mistake of looking at these different ancient practices and taking our approach i think which is to focus on the effect of one thing and lose sight that these practices really are almost designed to work in harmony with other things that one is trying to practice. Yep, exactly. That's a great way of stating it, Michael. I feel like you, um, when we look at pieces, we miss that the the richness, the complexity, the robustness of them working together. And I think it's really, I, you know, I'm a scientist too, and I think it's one of the downfalls of the way we look at things in modern science. There are many benefits to it, and I don't think we're going to capture it until we look at things from a more holistic standpoint. Hmm. You know, I... Yeah, I Oh, no, I, I was just going to say this, you know, this, this reminds me of how we do, how conventional medicine approaches the body. Conventional, conventional medicine, there's exactly. over 40 specialties uh, within, you know, the AMA, within the American Medical Association. And so when you pick apart the, the body like that, you lose the, the, big, the big picture. So, um you know, and this this is very similar. As if we take that conventional approach of just looking at pieces, I think we're going to miss out on on the the true t- tradition of uh, you know these techniques. Yeah. So, you know, I I I just thought I maybe I'm making the assumption our audience knows what mindfulness based meditation is. Uh, could one of you just basically? I know you've done studies with individuals with aphasia what kind of instructions do you give them well mindfulness is being present in the moment without judgment i mean that's kind of the simple one-off language from john kabat-zinn that he uses so the instructions can be as simply um, put as bring your awareness to how it feels to breathe in um, the coolness of the air as you inhale and the warmness as you exhale. So it's just being present to your body, being present to your thoughts, to your emotions, whatever comes up, 
allowing it and that practice of bringing your attention back to what you're focusing on over and over again is is what mindfulness is which is why i think it's so good with building attention is because it's basically building that muscle of oh my mind went off i was thinking about tomorrow and now i'm back to the breath oh wait i'm in yesterday okay i'm back to the breath and it's that practicing over and over again of coming back to what's here right now yeah yeah what would you tell speech pathologists out there who like what you're saying they're interested in this approach towards their patients that's a good question (laughs) (laughs) i think what you're referring to is that can they use that with their patients are they able to yeah and i think that you know scientifically no we don't have enough data to say hey this really works with patients with aphasia um we just don't have we don't have enough data. I think that what people are doing out in the field or outside of our field in integrative medicine is there are doctors that practice this, that they, they look at diet, they look at movement, you know, whether that be yoga or walking or visualization of movement to access the mirror neurons or supplements or meditation, all of those pieces, there are integrative practitioners that pull that together. And so, you know, I would say, find those practitioners and work with them in the sense of, I'm going to refer this client to you if it's something that you believe in. I see some clinicians who want to bring this into this practice. And while I think everyone in the entire universe could benefit from mindfulness, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's necessarily part of our clinical practice. I think that, you know, I'm a mindfulness instructor, so I teach mindfulness to whoever would like to learn mindfulness, and sometimes it's patients with aphasia, and sometimes it's students at the university, and sometimes it's people who just live in my community. So I just, maybe the suggestion is to, if you believe in it, to just bring it out there as best you can outside of the therapy room. Hmm. So maybe something more like not spending your billable hours instructing people in mindfulness, meditation but bringing it up as a topic with patients something that they might want to explore and giving them kind of a referral yeah yeah and you could you know part of what we do is is we do do some counseling slash education Mm. so that if if people are coming to us and saying oh i've got all of this stuff going on in my life it's you know i can't get to therapy because there's this other stressor in my life or um you know i can't do the homework that you're assigning because da 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 and oh i'm so overwhelmed and so forth we do um as speech language pathologists say things like okay well you know, how are, what are your coping? What are you using to cope with uh, some of these areas in your life? Mm-hmm. Um, let's look at that. And um, although we're not we're not counselors, we're not psychologists, we can kind of bring that into therapy and just and look at at those areas and then say, okay, well, you know, these are some other techniques that you might want to incorporate into your life that you might want to explore that may help reduce some of these stressors or the way you perceive these stressors 
or these events, I should say, in your life. So one of those could be meditation. One of those could be exercise. One of those could be finding a support group. Uh, one of those could be, um, uh, I, I don't know, <laughs> finding yeah. somebody else. So, you know, but yeah. it, the list goes on and on. <laughs> so I mean, I'm sure you guys can throw some in. But um, anyway. Yeah, well, I, th yeah, I think. Go ahead, Dr. Go ahead. Marshall. No, go, go ahead. Um, well, I think what you've pointed out, Jacqueline, is a really great point of it doesn't have to just be referral. It can be making those suggestions mm -hmm. and saying, you know, there is some research that potentially could suggest it. Like, here's something you might want to look into. And yeah, I, I think I think that's the, the piece that I hesitate with is should people go out and take a mindfulness based reduction training and then use it with their clients? And that's the question that I wish I could say, yes. <laughs> you know, um, but I feel like perhaps um, maybe not quite yet. Yeah, and, and there does seem to be pretty strong evidence that for normal, healthy people, exercise has a influence on cognition. Sleep, yes. sleep has a influence on cognition. We know that many of our patients for different reasons, can't or don't get as much exercise as they should. They have disrupted sleep patterns. And I think that clinicians kind of deal with that topic as it arises rather than having a kind of a formal, you know, it's built into their assessment right to ask about sleep to ask about these other lifestyle questions do you think we should be including that in a the way we assess oh i love that i know i would love it if we did that <laughs> oh my gosh would that be wonderful oh my goodness i mean yeah. that's that's what the paper that you know bajoya and i put out is that's what i would like to envision is that we do say you know are you getting enough sleep what what are your eating habits like what are you know are you are you getting some sort of movement every day are you you know what's your spiritual practice it doesn't have to be like but i i think all of those things we know we know we don't know it in aphasia specifically mm -hmm. we do know it in healthy aging yeah. that the lifestyle changes make a huge huge <laughs> difference in cognition in mood in just quality of life even uh, and i so i would love it if as a field we would begin to recognize that you know i i i, I got this from a colleague of mine at the va she's left the va her practice was really pretty much dedicated to young vets who've come back from Iraq and Afghanistan with mostly mild TBI, post-concussive syndrome, etc. And, you know, talking to her, she said there's so many comorbidities with these clients, PTSD, poor sleep, and and it was her impression that, at least for this population, that many, if not most, of their issues weren't really tied to cognitive deficits per se. They were due to these comorbidities, the 
um, poor sleep, um, chronic pain, uh, things of that nature. And so she really very much addressed that and incorporated that into her practice. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, 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 think, I think that's the way our field should be moving as well, is, is we should be looking at all of those different aspects, um, the big picture, definitely. Yeah. Yep, I agree. And, we, and it seems like an easy thing to do. Right. You know, I mean, we don't we don't have proof in this population that it, you know, what the effects are and so forth. And we're really at a, a um, the the early stage of any um, exploration of, of that. But you know, maybe even just on, on this these simple intakes of just asking questions about sleep, we could get more data. We could get more information from um, a variety of different uh, settings and so forth that could give us information about the importance. So. So it'd be great if, yeah, if clinicians, you know, started looking at that more. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a difference between asking if, you know, kind of investigating if this is an issue and making recommendations. I mean, obviously, there's, I can't tell you how to improve your sleep, but I can. Mindfulness works. Exercise Sorry. is probably good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mindfulness is good. What you eat is good. But. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, my approach has been, I, even though I believe that, I still don't have the level of confidence to make those recommendations. I mean, I think I'm, I do spend some time trying to identify them. And then, you know, I usually kind of make the suggestion that they might want to bring this up with their physician. You know, I, what I like about what both of you are doing is that, and I'm thinking about my focus, which tends to be people with aphasia, is that, you know, it's a game of inches in the sense that there's no magic bullet. And if there's anything that we can do to just improve a little bit, both in terms of quality of life and performance, then you know, we have to. Um, it's not like we're helping people enough that we can ignore this. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. We don't have the golden goose already where we can just say, well, well, they're at 99%. We're great. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like I agree that it is every, every moment that we can give back to clients that will give them that feeling of wholeness again is part of what is so um, beneficial to some of these practices. Yeah. If you don't mind, because we're, we're getting towards the end of our time here, but I, I'd like to bring in kind of a separate but related topic, and that's based off of Dr. Laura Score, a, a paper you wrote about speech pathology in the humanities. Um, really nice great read and something i'm interested in too could could you tell yeah. us a little bit about that well, you've done some, yeah you've done some great work um with poetry mm. and um and and i think what you're doing with your group 
is is exactly what we should be doing more of. So maybe you want to take a few moments to talk about your poetry group, but um, and I know there's a few other poetry groups um, throughout the United States too, where um, you know using um, I, th I think you had said once that uh, poetry is 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 wonderful for people with aphasia because of of the length mm -hmm. of of statements um, and um, so so in that way I think poetry can be very nice just as an emotional output too so and and yeah in, in that paper as well I talked about uh, music as an expression mm -hmm. uh, uh, that doesn't require language that also drawing and um, trying to think um, acting oh yeah you had yeah, a there number was of acting things too there. well and it got edited actually it got mm -hmm. edited down so I had a uh -huh. longer uh, manuscript um, but no I, I I believe that we have to um, as speech language pathologists also bring in many different more creative ways of allowing people to communicate than uh, just the written or I'm sorry, just the maybe more um, common day-to-day -day ways, so. Yeah, and I guess what I struggle with is, I mean, it's easy for me to understand or um, start some kind of program that's outside of rehab and it's, you know, people can come or not come, whatever. And I understand the benefit of that because people tell me. But I guess what I'm still thinking about and and not sure about at all is, let's say, let's take poetry, for example. When or how would I incorporate that into, again, a billable hour? I think what I've gotten from my clients, both in our book club and in our book club, we read adult fiction and nonfiction. So right now we're reading Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. And uh, recently we read The Metamorphosis by Kafka. You know, we don't shy away from challenging books. And some of our members can read, some can't. They listen on audiobook, and some do both. But... I think the feedback I've gotten from people is that there's a level of aspiration there that is very motivating and is very nourishing psychologically. And that with the poetry in particular, you know, there's a difference between failing to be able to say something conventional like ordering at a restaurant, something a five-year-old could do, and failing to express something much more lofty or deep and personal, there's kind of one is demoralizing, and failure to do the other is challenging. And there's kind of no dishonor. There's almost something virtuous about the attempt to do so. And I think that the arts and sticking with poetry 
you know, three, four words can, if composed right, can express something that is personal. But yeah, so I'm going on a bit too long here, but again, it, it it's, it's, you know, if we're going to talk about this in the context of rehab, which Dr. Laura Score, the journal that you published in, I think that's one of its missions. Yeah, the, the Journal of Humanities you know, I, and Rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm still not sure how, what that would look like. What, what exactly would look like? The... Well, like, let's take poetry. Okay. I'm I'm trying to imagine what that goal would look like. I, that I would feel confident that Medicare would reimburse for, or if we got audited, mm. yeah, you know that we wouldn't get dinged for. But it isn't. I mean, to me, this I think it goes back to some of the same questions we had before about mindfulness too. It's like we know mm. we know these things are beneficial on this like you know art we know art we know poetry we know expressing ourselves creativity is beneficial to who we are as people that and and that can only in turn in my opinion then help us heal help us be rehabilitated that's and in the same way our connection with our spirituality our connection with relationships with other people, with counseling, like all of that feels like that's that picture of the whole person. I, I don't know if you would agree with that, Jacqueline, but I don't know if Medicaid would still fund for it, but that's part of the way, you know, the, <laughs> it's a problem with the system. Yeah, exactly, that's what I yeah. was just thinking, is that we, we know these things are, we are so good for the person in the big picture, but we're just stuck in these old ways of thinking because of reimbursement. It's like, oh, how do we, I know poetry is gonna be great for this person, how do we incorporate it in therapy so I can get paid? Or so that my hospital or whatever can get paid because I wanna keep my job. <laughs> so, uh, you know, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I think there would probably be ways in which you could write that goal so that it's about written written communication this person yep. will write expressive communication in lots of different ways right you 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 don't have to put the word yeah, poetry yeah right you can be vague uh-huh. <laughs> right <laughs> so i'm an expert in vague goals <laughs> we should be Perfect. asking you these questions then. right yeah give us some example of functional goals that are Poetry and mindfulness, please. Well, self-monitoring instead of mindfulness, perhaps, is more like improving self-monitoring. Yeah, it's an attention. It's an attention training program, right? Uh It's self-regulation training program. It's an awareness, uh, increased awareness. Mm -hmm. Right, and and we can, I think, kind of find those terms that are accepted, like self-regulation like self-monitoring awareness and you know if that's the goal it's still up to us to decide how to achieve it Mm -hmm. right and if that is let's say someday we have the confidence that we can say well that's 
this kind of meditation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, right. Yep. You know, maybe this is also off topic, but Dr. Marshall is thinking about your the paper you wrote on integrative health mm -hmm. approach. And uh, to the best of my recollection, psychotherapy wasn't included in there. Well, we did talk um, about emotions as, mm -hmm, as that's something. Right. And, and so part of that, I mean, I do know that, you know, I feel like you're, you had mentioned before about individuals who have aphasia aren't receiving the counseling that they need. And I would wholeheartedly yeah. agree with that. I mean, that's, that's very true. Um, yeah. So that would most definitely fit into your oh, yeah. kind of model of integrative. Health. Yeah. I think it's, right. it's a, it's a huge portion of our lives. I mean, I think some people, they mm. find that, um, talk therapy, you know, counseling is extremely beneficial for their emotions and some people working with emotions in a different way. Um, coaching, for instance, would be another great example. You know, Audrey Holland is a, a great trailblazer in that regard with aphasia and positive psychology. That's a wonderful example. And there's been oodles of research <laughs> in, uh, in healthy aging, looking at things like gratitude and how that can be beneficial mm. emotionally, you know, as well as there's lots of information about how counseling can be beneficial for looking at the whole person. And, and one of our, a study that a student, one of my students and I published back in 2012 looked at uh, the perception of stress and mm. depression as well as stroke severity and found that um, the perception of stress is, or how we perceive events in our life is much more important than the stroke severity. So, so it's how we look at things is going to um, contribute much more to a mood disorder such as depression than maybe some of the physical stuff that's actually going on. So it all gets back to like how we think about events in our lives, how we think about situations and so forth. And so any type of uh, psychotherapy that could be done to help people maybe shift their perception is would be a great thing too because that may then avoid depression um, and we know depression in uh, post-stroke uh, adults uh, it has a, a negative effect on functional outcome uh, recovery so yeah that's that's it's it's important that they're going to be getting some counseling as well definitely yeah, and I guess mindfulness-based meditation, you know, Dr. Lauerscore, you're kind of talking about what people are paying attention to. And so I, my understanding is that one of the benefits of a mindfulness-based approach is, is that we don't self-ruminate as much. And am I on the right track here, Dr. You Marshall? You are exactly on track, yes. Mindfulness is is the whole practice within, specifically in mindfulness-based stress reduction, is the perception of how do you, how do you view things. And so there can be uh, an event, a situation, a circumstance, and you have the opportunity to view it as positive or negative, really, if you want to break it down into that easy sense of it. But that's, that's one of the advantages of mindfulness is it does bring in self-regulation of not only of 
attention, but also of emotions. Yeah, I guess I wonder how what that how that might help some of my clients who I really get a sense that their perception of their problem is much bigger than anyone around them. Or that that patient who's actually does pretty well in conversation, but thinks they can't speak. You know, I've had, I don't know how many clients I've told me quite fluently that they can't speak. And of course, I know what they mean. It's not it's not literal, but kind of part of it is in a way that they talk about it in the sense that some clients really see themselves as a total failure in communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and a continuation you know. of uh, continuing to self-identify somebody who, with significant aphasia, even though the recovery has been pretty well. I've seen that a lot as well so um, yeah. where i'm surprised yeah. that somebody is still going to an aphasia group because they're doing so well um so it is <laughs> i i that has struck me as well over the years too is it's just that continued self-identification mm-hmm. um, and, and seeming to be a barrier almost in in relationships but it's almost self-created so whereas there's other people who are yes. you know just moving right on so they're going back out there, yeah. you know, getting married there, you know, doing all sorts of things. That mm-hmm. it's, this this idea of having aphasia doesn't keep them back, or, you know, right. hold them back, I should say. Yeah, there is this huge component of people's subjective experiences and how that influences, I mean, their subjective beliefs, perceptions, and how that colors um, their relationship with their disability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I think you know part of this this big piece of of counseling as well is um, having counselors that are trained and adept at oh, working yeah. with communication mm-hmm. disorders. So um, I think that is a huge roadblock to getting good therapy. Good. Um, psychotherapy or counseling for people with aphasia and other communication disorders is just creating a better link between speech pathology, our training programs, and the counseling training programs, I think is is important. Yeah, and I've seen persons with aphasia basically be discharged real soon from seeing a psychologist and when I've had access to the notes, reading between the lines, I always got the feeling that this psychologist was in, invested in a talking cure and they couldn't do it very well uh, with my client. And, um, and so they were you know, discharged. Yeah. I try to do better now and, and be more proactive and engaging with that psychologist so that they maybe have some tips on how to communicate a little bit better good Um, good that's what's needed for sure well dr laris gore dr marshall this has been really fascinating i know we could sit and talk for at least another hour about this stuff for sure (laughs) thanks again for talking with us thank you for listening to this episode of the ancds podcast 
Show notes and any links related to this episode can be found on our website at ancds.org.